And they literally had temples where they would go in and as part of the worship service, commit acts of fornication and adultery. You say, do we have that God today in America? Absolutely. There's a whole pornographic empire that's built around that goddess. And millions of Americans give their affections to that goddess weekly through the internet, through television, through movies they download, movies that are filled with sensuality. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and in chapters 2 and 3, we've been studying the messages Jesus had for the seven churches in Asia Minor. We've so far looked at the messages to the churches at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. And today, in chapter 3, verse 7 to 13, we look at the message to the church in Philadelphia. While some of the other churches we've studied had both a commendation and a condemnation, Philadelphia had no rebuke. In this message entitled, A Church God Can Use, we'll see that this church had found particular favor in God's eye. Would you take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Most people can find at least the first book of the Bible and the last book, Genesis and Revelation, but most Americans cannot pronounce the title of this book correctly. It's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. It's a single revelation that is given to Jesus Christ that John records for us. Now listen, if we're not living in the time frame that is described in this book, we are certainly living on the threshold of that time frame. So many of the pieces of the puzzle that will be laid before the second coming are being laid in our lifetime. Think about it. Many sitting in this room during their lifetime, they've witnessed the rebirth of the nation of Israel. They've seen Russia rise as a world power, and the Bible mentions specifically Russia as a nation that will come into the Middle East and hate the Israeli people. We have seen the rise of a sodomite lifestyle. We've seen a growing moral bankruptcy, both in America and around the world. And God, like a, a jigsaw puzzle, is beginning to fit the pieces together. And so in the coming months, I think, I hope, you will get the overall picture of this book so that you can understand its movements and how it relates to our life. It sounds like you've found it. We want to begin in Revelation chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to pick up in verse 7 where we left off last time. Follow along in your Bible. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. 
He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, for the benefit of those joining us for the first time, let me establish the context of our passage we've seen that one of the critical keys to properly understanding and applying the book of Revelation is to honor the structure that God gave us. And so God gave John the apostle a commission to write this book, but not only did he give him that commission in Revelation 1.19, he gave him the outline of the book. And so if you remember in 1.19, therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are, the things which will take place after these things. And when you read the book of Revelation, it becomes crystal clear that that is precisely the outline for the book. In chapter 1, all the way until the 20th verse, he describes the things which you have seen. Today, we are in the second section of the book, the things that are, that when John writes in 95 AD, he writes about things that were true right then at that moment concerning seven churches there in Asia. And then when we come to chapters 4 through 22, he will describe the future, the things which will take place. So right now we're in that section concerning the things that are. The present time when Christ addresses seven churches that were in existence in John's day. And what you read concerning the assessment of these churches is important because there's a common phrase that accompanies each church. Here in verse 13, concerning Philadelphia, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's rather interesting is that the assessment that each church is given is somewhat surprising. A few thought they weren't doing that well when Jesus actually said, you're doing great. And then there were some churches that thought they were doing great, and in reality, they weren't doing all that well. And that's kind of humbling. And that's why we must listen to what Christ says and what his assessment is of us corporately as a church and what his assessment of us as individuals are. Now, the problems that they face are problems that we face, and they're problems that any church can face. He speaks of what the Spirit says to the churches, not the church. But the churches, all seven churches, and by extension, every church, just like when we read the letter of Paul to the Romans, we recognize it's not just for the Romans, it's for us. And even so, these seven epistles, there's really not 21 letters in the New Testament. That's what most people think. There's actually 28, right? There's the 21 letters in the New Testament, plus these seven letters found within the book of Revelation. Now, we learned from some of these churches that um, Christ was either pleased or displeased. There's typically an introduction concerning himself. There's a commendation or a rebuke or both. Remember the church in Ephesus? You might want to look back in the opening of chapter 2. That was a church that had left its first love. They were orthodox in what they believed, but they had left. It's one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. Not that they had lost their first love. You don't lose your first love. You leave it. It's a willful, conscious decision that you made. And so they were sound in doctrine, but they were low on devotion. Then we studied Christ's letter to the church in Smyrna. It's only one of two churches 
in which he gives praise, no rebuke at all. This was a church, Smyrna, that was willing to suffer and be persecuted for their faith. And they were right in the middle of God's will as a suffering church. Then we came to the church at Pergamum. Remember them? Or Pergamos, depending on how you want to spell the original. It can... It was a church that had compromised. It was a church that basically had tolerated false doctrine in the church. Thyatira also taught us, the church at Thyatira next, that you can be true in one realm and wrong in another realm. And that typically compromise in one area will lead to compromise in other areas. That's not only true corporately of a church, but it's true also individually. So in the 19... Uh, 80s, when a lot of mainline denominations began to compromise a simple doctrine on the role of women in the church. Now they've compromised everything. They've thrown the whole Bible out. You start slow in one area and it will grow like a cancer. Then if you were here last time, we looked at the church at Sardis. That was a church that was basically asleep at the wheel. They had an impressive past, but they were not promised an effective future unless some things changed. They had kind of a ho-hum attitude. They had the appearance of being a great church, but from Christ's perspective, it was not a great church. Now, don't miss it. Like the other 21 New Testament letters, these seven letters are not simply for them, but for us. It's not simply for people who lived in the first century, but people who live in the 21st century. And it's possible to be like the church at Ephesus where you lose your love. It's possible for us as a church or us individually to be like the church at Smyrna, a church of great faithfulness. It's possible to be like the church at Pergamum, a church with really rotten doctrine. And so on and on we can go. And again, he who has an ear, let him hear what he says to the churches. So as a corporate body and individually, we need to listen very carefully as we come this morning to this sixth church, the church in Philadelphia. And I've titled this morning's message, A Church That God Could Use. I suppose we could say an individual that God could use as well. And uh, this church is a faithful church, as I'm terming it. With each of the churches, I've given you a title. Some of you have written them down. Some of you asked me, they said, I missed it last week. And I said, I said it, you just missed it. But I'm glad you're eager to learn. And I'm just thrilled to see people taking notes that you're hungry. You know, when someone sits there like this, their arms are up like this, and they're not even looking at their Bible, it shouts by your body language, apathy. You don't want to be a ho-hum, apathetic Christian. I hope you're passionate for Jesus. And I hope you love him with all of your heart. Now, I don't know about you, but if there was one church that I would want Community Bible Church to be like, if I had to pick just one, it'd be this church, the church at Philadelphia. It's a church that has God's blessing on it, and it's one of the two churches that Jesus gives no rebuke, but only a commendation. And so we're thinking about the kind of church that God can use. And there are three principles that are underscored here in our text. The first concerns the church and her master, the church and her master. Notice how the epistle opens into the angel. We saw that's the pastor, not a literal angel. We looked at it contextually earlier in our study. The pastor, or what today we might call the senior pastor, It's not denying a plurality of elders, but there's always a leader amongst equals. 
to the angel of the church in Philadelphia right. Now let's go back to the map here for a moment. As you can see on the map, there is an address that Jesus gives to seven churches, and uh, it's carried uh, these letters like in a horseshoe pattern. We started in Ephesus. I called it the formal church because, again, they were high on doctrine, but they were low on devotion. They had left their first love. From there, we went another 35 miles up the road to the church at Smyrna. I called it the fearful church because Jesus commands them, don't fear. They were being persecuted, beaten up, and he says, don't fear. Just keep doing what you're doing. From there, we left another 50 miles up the road, and we went to the church at Pergamum or Pergamos, and I called it the faltering church. They were compromising God's truth. From there, we went another 40 miles from Pergamum to the church at Thyatira. It was a false church. They were corrupted by false doctrine. Then we went another 30 miles last week, if you were here, and we came to the church at Sardis, and we called it a fruitless church. They had kind of a ho-hum spirit. And some people have that same attitude in their lives. I'm just a ho-hum kind of Christian. I'm here because it's Sunday, and I'm supposed to be, but maybe if there was a better choice, I wouldn't be here. Now, as I think about these churches, let's pause for a moment as we have with each church and talk about what the city was like in the first century. Because very often, we're influenced by what's happening around us. And of course, that's the exhortation in Romans 12, 1 and 2, not to be shaped by the world's mold. So we live in a place in South Carolina, and the influences here might be a little different from other parts of the world, though we're becoming more and more of a single world nation through the internet and other vehicles. But the place you live in can influence you, and that was certainly true in the first century. And so Jesus addresses each city, each church accordingly. If you remember in Revelation 1-4, we are told, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So just remember, we're in Asia, not the continent of Asia as we call it today. Uh, that's a term that comes uh, um, centuries later in human history. Asia in the first century was a province. Today, it's Turkey. Sometimes it's referred to as Little Asia or Asia Minor. And of course, Turkey has been in the news this week with, with a major earthquake that is there. Um, this church is also kind of interesting in that it's the newest city out of all seven. Uh, this city had not been established all that long. It was established in 189 BC by a king by the name of Eumenes. King Eumenes came and he conquered this city and he called it Philadelphia. So that's where Philadelphia began. Now, you know the name Philadelphia. There are over 20 cities in the United States that are called Philadelphia. North Carolina, Illinois, Arkansas, Indiana, but probably the most famous, of course, is Pennsylvania. Adelphos, most of you know that word. It means brother. Phileo, one of the Greek words for love. And so when we speak of Philadelphia, we're talking about brotherly love, and so the city of brotherly love. And so this king, Amenus, had a brother. His name was Adelus, and he loved his brother. And because he loved his brother, he said, I'll get a city for my brother. And he goes and he conquers the people. And he says, here, here's your own city. Nice guy. In either case, it was a, a gateway to the east. It was a major trade route, and so it was a very prosperous city. 
But one of the reasons it's an important city for us as Christians is, is that it was a missionary center, not in the way we're using the word today, but it was a missionary center in terms of spreading the Greek culture. So people would come here, they would be educated and trained in Greek culture, and they would go through the empire and spread the Greek culture. Why is that important? Because God was preparing the world and the fullness of time for His Son to come. So after the Greeks came the Romans, as we studied in Daniel. And when the Romans come, there's the Roman pox, the Roman peace. There's a Roman road system that goes throughout the world. All roads literally led back to Rome. But there was a common language, Koine Greek. Just like uh, when you go to a foreign country today and almost anywhere you go, you will find English-speaking people, folks who are bilingual. A hundred years ago, the international language was French. Today, it's English. Well, the international language in this day was Greek, and it made for the spread of the gospel. Now, in 17 AD, before Jesus writes and addresses this group, there was a major earthquake in this city. I mean, the place just tumbled down. So the emperor rebuilt the city, and he renamed it Flavia. Another Caesar, on another occasion when the city collapsed, he rebuilt the city and he called it New Caesar or Neo-Caesaria. But the name, for whatever reason, though different emperors would name it after themselves, the name that still stuck in Jesus' day when he writes this letter was the name Philadelphia. But it was nicknamed Little Athens. Now, most of you know Athens, Greece. It's a major city in the Acts of the Apostles. You find Paul up there on Mars Hill preaching on top of a hill where you have the religious center here, the government center here, and the business center here. And he addresses, in essence, Jesus Christ from his worldview that God had given him as an apostle. And so, Athens is an important city in the first century, and this little Athens basically mimicked that major city. And one of the principal ways it mimicked little of major Athens was through the worship of the false gods that they ascribed to. And so if you go to Athens today, you will find some of the original temples. Most of them, many of them are intact. This place, most of them have crumbled, but there's enough stones left that shout the message of what these people believed in who they worshipped. One of the gods that they magnified in this particular city was a god named Mammon. You've heard the god Mammon. It comes directly into the English language. It was the god of possessions. And there were people who literally worshipped this god. They believed that he was the source of everything they owned. And so they bow down and worship the God of Mammon. Do we have that God here today? Of course we do. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We may not call him the God Mammon, but people today worship things. There are some people today who will not be in church and they haven't been in church in years because they worship things and Sunday is just another day to make more money. There was another little god in little Athens. The god's name was Bacchus or Dionysus, another Greek name. The Roman god Bacchus, the Greek name Dionysus. It was the god of wine. Now, if you go to Philadelphia today, it's not called that, but you go there today and you discover that some of the richest soil in the world through a number of volcanoes that they had has made an ideal place to grow grapes. And so the people said, we were blessed with rich soil, 
We're blessed with the ability to grow vineyards, so we will worship the God of alcohol, the God of wine. Do we have that God in America today? Of course we do. Billions of dollars are spent paying homage to this God, advertising this God. We may not have a temple like they did in Little Athens, but we sometimes have our own little temples in our homes or what we call bar rooms. Another god in Little Athens found amongst the ruins that the people worshipped was the god Aphrodite or the god Venus. This is the goddess of licentiousness and sex. And they literally had temples where they would go in and as part of the worship service commit acts of fornication and adultery. You say, do we have that God today in America? Absolutely. There's a whole pornographic empire that's built around that goddess. And millions of Americans give their affections to that goddess weekly through the internet, through television, through movies they download, movies that are filled with sensuality. Another god in that particular place called Little Athens or Philadelphia was Sophia. Most of us know the word Sophia. Uh, it refers to wisdom. And so this was the goddess of learning. Uh, and of course, when uh, we learn according to God's way, then it's a positive wisdom. But the wisdom of this world, the Scripture says, is foolishness to God. You say, do we have that God in America today? Absolutely. We dishonor our God in the day that we live in. We have these places called universities. And so many of them, their Bible is a science textbook, their utopia is some earth they're trying to create or some tree they're trying to hug, and, and it's all phony and it's all fake and it's all contrary to the revelation of Scripture, and it's capturing a generation. And so if a young person is not grounded in the Scriptures by the time they go to the average university in America... Their heart is a million miles away. Conversion must happen first, but more than conversion, they must be taught truth. So make no mistake, what I want you to see is this is the atmosphere that a church was born in, and this is the atmosphere they functioned in, but it did not function the health of this local church we call Philadelphia. So as we think about the church and her master, let's first think about the master's attributes. We must learn something of his attributes. Verse 7 opens, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, and who shuts, and no one opens, says this. Now remember, in each of the seven letters, we dipped back into chapter 1. We saw that description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he took descriptions of himself and he applied them accordingly to the need, either negative or positive, as it related to a specific church. And some of you took my challenge in the early weeks and you went back and you tried to match up where does it come from in Revelation 1, what church does he apply it to. And those of you who did that discovered that there was one church namely this church, the church in Philadelphia, who did not have a commendation that came out of the first chapter. He gives them a special commendation that's not found in chapter 1, and rightly so, because this church is so unique. And so Jesus describes himself as 
the one who is holy and true, or more literally, he who is the holy and the true. The article is found both before the word holy and before the word true and original. It doesn't read real smooth in English when you do that, but it's important. When God, by the Spirit of God, inspires a word, he inspires it for a purpose. He is described as the holy and the true. Now, I underscore this because one of the great titles for God throughout all the Old Testament of the Father is He is the Holy One. You might want to circle out in the margin of your Bible if it's there, Isaiah 40, verse 25, or just write it, to whom then will you liken me that I would be His equal, says the Holy One. When God asks that question, he is saying there is absolutely no one that you can even begin to compare me to. I have no equals, says the Holy One. Now that's a title for God Almighty, and yet it is a title that the Lord Jesus ascribes to himself here in this, this letter to this church. He is not simply, though, holy and true. He is the holy and the true one. He is like the Father, and if there's anything that will capture you when you step into glory, it will be the absolute holiness of God. Jesus in Hebrews 7 is described as a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's without blemish. He's absolutely perfect. So when the Bible says Christ died for sins, 1 Peter 3, and he was sinless, then the only way to understand his death is substitutionary in nature. He had no sin. He was dying for nothing he had done. He was dying for us. And so Peter writes, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. Peter has already said in 1 Peter 2.22 that Christ committed no sin. And so Scripture paints him as sinless. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, he knew no sin. 1 John says, in him there is no sin. Hebrews 4 says, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. You say, how do we know? Because in the Old Testament, the prophets wrote that when God would become a man, you would know it was really, truly God in a human body because not only would he die, be pierced through for our iniquity, not only would he be buried... And there's typology and specific prophecies that relate to all of these. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. And so Romans 1.4 calls the resurrection a declaration. It calls it an announcement. God announces that Jesus is God in human flesh by the resurrection. He's the first one to be resurrected from the dead. Not the first to be raised to life. Seven people are raised to life in the Bible only to die again. Jesus is the first ever to be resurrected to life in a forever body, demonstrating His sinlessness. And so the Scripture says, death is no longer master over Him. And so if I asked you the question this morning, do you believe Jesus is sinless? What I'm really asking you is, do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. To listen again to today's study in Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13, and the message, A Church God Can Use, visit searchthescriptures.org or use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets. If you prefer, you can order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV9. 
Search the Scriptures is committed to introducing people to Christ and to then grow believers in their walk of faith. If you'd like to help support this teaching ministry, please call 877-787-7478 to make a one-time gift or to inquire about becoming a monthly foundation partner. You can also visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and click the Give button. Thank you. Tomorrow we continue our message, A Church God Can Use. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.